I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. I want to welcome to the literary life this week, the author of a book that has been taking the literary world a bit by storm these days. It's called The Henna Artist, and the author is Alka Joshi. Uh, this is Alka's very first book. Uh, she came to writing after a very, very vibrant and successful career in advertising and marketing. Alka is originally from India, but she moved to the United States when she was nine years old. She graduated from Stanford, and as I said, after a very, very fulsome career in advertising and PR, she started her own marketing uh, consultancy. But she did go back to school and got her MFA in creative writing from uh, California College of Arts in San Francisco. And as I said, The Hen Artist is her very first novel, which has been getting wonderful, wonderful reviews, and the sales have been the sales have been so good. You should be feel so proud of the fact that you have uh, been so successful on your very first novel. Welcome to The Literary Life, Helka. Thank you so much for having me. The whole thing has taken me completely by surprise, completely. How did it feel to see your picture so prominently displayed in the New York Times on the <laughs> article? Oh my gosh, it's like a dream come true. You know, I think we all have these fantasies like, oh, someday maybe I'll have a uh, picture in the New York Times, or someday I will have a movie uh, written about 
me or my book or something like that, you know, and it's all a fantasy until it actually happens. And then you think, wow, this could actually be real. I can't believe it. This is my life. So tell me a little bit about your life. So you came here when you were nine. And where did you move to when you were nine years old? We moved from Rajasthan in India to Ames, Iowa, where my father was getting his doctorate. And he was uh, very interested in environmental engineering. So that was part of what he wanted to study and do his research in. Well, we get plopped into a very um, Anglo you know, area and we are the only brown kids in classes. So at nine years old, I'm having to answer questions that I don't actually understand. And the questions go like this. Uh, is that a tan that you have? And how did you get that tan? Um, do you speak English? Did you speak English before you got here? Or is this something you just learned? Um, they asked me if India was anywhere close to Texas. And then they asked me what tribe I was from. And then they asked me things like, you know, do you worship cows? And I just thought, wow, I don't understand how to answer any of these questions because I don't even understand the questions. I would run home and ask my dad, dad, do we worship cows? Dad, you know, I, I, I don't understand why people are asking me these questions. And so I think that kind of what happened, Mitch, is that I realized the way that Americans perceived India in 1967, when we first came here, was of a starving, illiterate, underdeveloped country. But that wasn't the India I knew. That wasn't the India my family came from. And so I was completely bewildered about what this was all about. So when I started to write this book, I wanted to talk about the India I knew in the 1950s. I wanted to talk about the beauty of India, the crafts that no one can take away from this amazing land that people have colonized for centuries and centuries and centuries. I wanted to talk about the exuberance that Indians felt post-independence, which is not something that gets written about very much. And um, I wanted to talk about this excitement that 900 million people in 1950s felt about having their land back to themselves, having the ability to set their own policies, to do the things that they felt were right for their own people, and to rebuild all the industries that the British had destroyed. So um, that's what I wanted to talk about. And I feel like I have finally reclaimed my India, not the India from my nine-year-old self. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about, is that journey that it took to do that. Because obviously, you weren't defeated by all of that. If anything, it gave you more, more of a sense of who you were when you were back in Ames. It made you, I mean, you know, some kids could be somewhat defeated by that kind of, you know, institutional racism, this sort of, you know, what we're going through right now in terms of understanding, you know, the fact that we don't have a very good cultural education here in terms of teaching people about other, about other countries or other parts of the world. So, so you, you must have come from a very, very secure uh, family that understood and, and, and gave you that sense of identity which kept it very strong. Would you say that is maybe the case? <laughs> I would love to be able to say that, but that is not the case. Okay, so the, then the journey was your own. Yes, so the journey was my own. Journey. Yeah. So after Ames, how long were you in Ames for? 
Really? We were at Ames for three years, and then uh, my dad got his first job in uh, St. Louis. We were in St. Louis for a year, and then he got transferred to Kansas City. So we were there for six years, and then I immediately went off to college in California. And, um, you know, my dad was always very adamant about us having a great education. And so all three of us have always been learners our entire lives. Uh, we went to great colleges. You know, we, we, uh, we have always wanted to learn about other cultures, about other things. So I would say that we're all, uh, you know, patterned after my dad in that way. He has traveled the world working and learning. You have two but siblings? You have two siblings? I have two brothers. I have an older brother, a two years older, and a younger brother, a year younger. All right. So the writing, the passion for writing, was that with you all along this journey from Ames to Stanford? No. <laughs> no. Another no. Um, no, I actually had no idea that I would end up writing anything uh, that would be publishable because if you had told me in my 20s, 30s, 40s that I was going to write a novel, I would have laughed. But in uh, other people saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. So for example, when I went for my first advertising job, I thought I was gonna be an art director. That's what I went for. I said, okay, here's my portfolio. I wanna be an art director. But in reality, what happened is that my um, our, uh, creative directors who were interviewing me said, well, did you write all of this stuff that's in your portfolio? And I said, yes. And they said, well, then we'd, let, we'd like to hire you as a writer because it's hard to come by good writers. And I said, oh, but I always envisioned myself as an art director. And they said, no, 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 you are a writer. So that I became a writer quite by accident. And then I was writing these little short stories. I'm writing little commercials. I'm writing radio spots, uh, tiny little mini stories in which you have to get an entire scene uh, communicated to the viewer or the listener in a very short period of time. My husband saw that I had the potential to write fiction in that. Mm -hmm. And I kept telling him, no, 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 I am just an advertising hack. I don't know how to write fiction. And he said, take some classes. So I took some classes and my teachers were so encouraging. And then in 2008, when the mortgage crisis hit, right, I had no work in my agency. A lot of marketing and advertising dollars got cut back. So I thought, hey, now I can go to graduate school and maybe become that writer that my husband thinks I can become. <laughs> and you did. That is really a wonderful story. So during this whole period, were you traveling to India often? Did you go, to, did you go back to visit India, to visit family or anyone there? Coincidentally, at the same time that I started my MFA program uh, at the age of 51, my younger brother had bought a condo in Jaipur just for my parents, just so they could go back and forth and reconnect with family and friends. And my mother needed a chaperone, so I would take her there. She would stay for several months, and then I would bring her back. And during those visits, I would stay you know, with her for a couple of weeks at a time. And I got a chance to ask her a lot of things in addition to going to all the places that she liked to go. We went to the Hawa Mahal. Uh, the uh, ladies' palace that I talk about. Mm -hmm. We went to the Japper Palace. We ate kofi outside the palace. We, um, uh, you know, went for chili peanuts. We ate a lot of these sweets that Lakshmi makes in the henna artist for her clients. And I talked to her about her girlhood. I talked to her about what she liked to study in school, what she liked to do as a girl, what she might have wanted to be. And that is really what gave me the inspiration to figure out what, what would mom's life have looked like 
if she could have done anything she wanted to do instead of always being at the behest of her father who set up an arranged marriage for her or at the behest of my father who was um, you know, heading up the family and making all the major decisions. What could my mom have done? That's such an interesting construct that you approach this novel almost journalistically, but sort of an alternate history, an alternate ending. Sort of, I, mean, I know in that New York Times piece, they liken it to uh, Philip Roth's Plot Against America or Rodham by, uh, um, by Curtis Sittenfeld. And what you've done is you've kind of rewritten your mother's life in a sense, uh, which I found really fascinating. So let's talk about the book a little bit now. So The Henna Artist. Uh, for some of us who may not, I mean, I know henna when I see it, but tell us a little bit about henna and the significance of henna itself. The henna craft is over 5,000 years old and it has always been practiced in India and Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Middle East, uh, parts of Northern Africa and also uh, Southern China. And the henna plant grows in those hot arid areas. So the henna plant is harvested, the leaves are dried, it is pulverized into a powder and then mixed with water and oil and all kinds of other ingredients to make a henna paste. And the henna paste was applied because the plant has these cooling properties. So the henna paste is applied largely to hands and feet because that's where your extremities you know, can cool off the fastest. It's also applied to the hair and the head because that is also a place where you can cool off your body faster. So that's how originally it was applied. And then it got to be sort of a decorative art and people started applying it for weddings and for festivities. So that is something that Lakshmi in the henna artist does. But she is so different from other henna artists. And this is something I really wanted her to be. I wanted her to be the kind of henna artist who is making 10 times what anybody else is making because she's using her imagination to create designs that no one else is creating. So instead of the dots and dashes and very simple geometric patterns that were being applied when my mother was married in 1955, I wanted Lakshmi to be creating more symbolic representational henna. So on Parvati's feet, one of her major clients in Jaipur, uh, she knows that Parvati is waiting for a seductive afternoon with her husband. And so she paints a fig and the wasp on her feet uh, as a way to indicate that there is about to be some fertilization happening <laughs> between the wasp and the fig. Right. And so I wanted um, Lakshmi to create the, uh, to manifest the desires and the hopes of a lot of the women that she services by applying that henna. And then also, well, right? You also, I, I'll just point out, you married your writing and your art direction together right there, right? Yes, Mitch, that's exactly it because I started off my life as an artist. That, you know, I paint and I draw and I do all of those things. So in my writing, I see everything in my head very clearly. I see the colors. I see where everything is located in a scene. I see what people are wearing. I see the designs and the patterns. And then I just transfer them down to the paper. So the other thing about Lakshmi is that not only is she an amazing henna artist, artist but she also acts as a bit of a therapist as well, right? Yes, exactly. That. Is that is that normal? Is that is that natural? Is that no. what would be done by henna artists? 
No, this is once again, something that only Lakshmi does. And I kind of have my hairdresser to thank for that (laughs) because my hairdresser, when I go see him, I'm the only one in the studio. He only has the one chair and the one shampoo bowl. And after that hour, I feel so well taken care of because he has applied aromatherapy oils to my forehead. He has uh, luxuriated my hair to the point where it's just gleaming. Um, He has put a style on my uh, cut that no one else has. And so I really feel so pampered by the time the, the afternoon is over. And I wanted Lakshmi to create that same kind of feeling for all of her clients. I wanted her to make them feel that they are the only people in her life at that time. And she is only concerned about them in that moment. So they love her. And they love her, but then her world gets turned upside down, right? Because she is, she has left an abusive arranged marriage, correct? Yes. And she did that 13 years ago and she hasn't told anybody what she did because back when she left a marriage because her husband was abusing her, it wasn't possible for a woman to get a divorce. 1955 was the first year that Indians were allowed to get a legal divorce. And so when we catch up to her, it is 1955. And I wanted her to have that opportunity to get that final separation from her husband legally. She does. And um, we won't do any spoiler alerts in this, but it is, it's just a very compelling. And what you do, which is so beautiful, is you paint, you really paint, you, you did what you set out to do, is you paint, you bring us into a world, someone like me who doesn't know that world, you really are able to bring somebody into a world that they haven't experienced before, which is the, the gift of the gift of the gift of the novel, really. Um, how much is your mom in this and how much isn't? My mom is in Lakshmi in the way Lakshmi looks. So my mom has the light green blue eyes. Um, that Lakshmi does. Uh, she was beautiful. My mo- if you go to my Instagram, you will see pictures of my mother in 1950s, and she is gorgeous. Um, she also has my mother's creative spirit in the way that she can apply the henna. My mother was so creative, you could give her, um, you know, a pencil and, uh, you know, a jar, and she could make something really creative out of it. I have no idea how she did it, but she could always do it. Um, And then also she has my mother's resilient spirit. And this is something also I wanted to bring out in the book is that women in India and in cultures that are very patriarchal, like the Indian society, women find ways to have agency. Even though they have this limited social boundary that they can operate in, they find ways to get agency. And this is something I think my mother did also. So Lakshmi finds a way to get agency within this uh, patriarchy. Um, and so, you know, she has, she has a lot of my mother in her, Lakshmi does, but also the mother-in-law has a lot of my mother in her. So the mother-in-law is this very kind and nurturing and gentle teacher. And this is how my mother was with me. So when my mother was teaching me how to cook or how to garden or how to sew, she would be so gentle. And if I made a mistake, she would say, okay, honey, we'll just start over again. She never, you know, reprimanded me and said, oh, you just don't know how to do anything. And I wanted that relationship between Lakshmi and her mother-in-law because it is so contrary to the way mother-in-laws are usually portrayed. Right, right. 
well, in almost any culture, you know, a mother-in-law is to be hated and she's vile. And I, I thought, no, you know, mother-in-laws are also very kind and gentle like my mother-in-law is and like my mother was to my husband. So that's the kind of mother-in-law I wanted to create. So that also is part of my mother. So tell me a little bit about how the book has been received in India. I know that you were on your, you were in, you know, Indian Vogue and all of that sort of thing. So how has it been received there? This was one of my biggest concerns, Mitch, is that maybe the book would not be received well with Indians and that Indians might say to me, this doesn't feel authentic. You've been living in America since you were nine years old. How could you possibly know what India feels like? And to my surprise, so many Indians have written to me. I have spoken to book clubs in India. I have spoken to a lot of people who grew up in Jaipur or who still live there. I have spoken to a high school in Jaipur uh, that, that all read my book and wanted to talk to me about it. And they all say, this feels so authentic. Thank you for making India feel like the proud India we think of like the India that is beautiful and that is majestic because, yeah. I I was going to say, ironically, one of the most important book festivals in the world is now in Jaipur. Yeah, Jaipur Lit Lit Festival, yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, it just emerged over the last number of years. And maybe post-COVID you'll be able to go and, you know, be, be be part of it. You know, I'm the, waiting for an invitation, Mitch. Hello. Well, well they're not, they haven't been doing anything really because everyone is on hold these days right yeah. now. But um, that's really, really a wonderful, wonderful story. And the book has had just such, I mean, look, I've been doing this for a lot of years and I've seen a lot of first time authors and, and the kind of success you've had, which is completely well-deserved, but oftentimes well-deserved books get overlooked. But Yours is not. But how did, how did you feel about being selected for Reese's Book Club back in May? How did you feel about that? It completely took me by surprise, and I was so grateful. You know, I think Reese Witherspoon is the only person out there who is promoting books that are written by women with very strong central characters that are women. So this whole female-centric theme that she has is giving a voice and giving promotion and publicity to books written by women that wasn't there before. Nobody was doing this before Reese did it, and she's only been doing it in the last three years. So now what we see in the New York Times bestseller list, only 15 books are allowed to be in every category, but now we're seeing a lot more women in that category that never used to happen, Um, which was ironic because it's the majority of women who buy the hardcover fiction. Yeah. And so now they're actually seeing, oh, there's other women. They're finding out about the books that are written by women that they might also want to read that have them in it, right? They see themselves in these books. Like my readers for the henna artists see themselves in this book. Well, the other... The other, the other beautiful thing is that people are now buying books uh, about other cultures as well. People really want to explore cultures of all sorts. And also people want to read about, about people like them. So I'm sure there are a lot of, of Indian American readers who are thrilled that you've written this book as well. Not only is it a reselection, but I also know that the book has been optioned for film. Is it film or television? I don't remember. A limited TV series, and that's by Miramax TV, and Frida Pinto is, of course, 
Wars attached to the project, and she will star as Lakshmi. And then Michael Edelstein is uh, the executive producer uh, overall. So this is this is very exciting. Are they are they going to film both in India when they can? Are they going to film in India and here? Yes, they plan to film largely in Jaipur because we have to have the scenery of Jaipur and we have to have that authenticity of the the environment. So yes, it'll largely be filmed there. Um, And I think what's really exciting is that they know that this is a globally uh, accepted piece of work. So it's been translated into 18 languages. The henna artist uh, has been uh, received really well in the Latin countries, uh, in America, in Australia, in Canada, uh, in the UK, in Spain, in France, <laughs> in Greece, I mean all over. And so what they are really uh, banking on, I think, is that this is a limited TV series that has global appeal, not just for Indians, not just for... Oh, Pakistan. I mean, look at, look at what happened with Crazy Rich Asians, right? I mean... Yes. There is a global market, and it's very, very clear that there is. And this is a, a book that I'm sure will do really, really well, not only as a book, but as a limited series, too. You're, you've, you've just, you're operating on all cylinders with this book. You should feel very, very proud. Your book talks about uh, the Indian caste system, and there's just been a new book by Isabel Wilkerson called Caste. Can you reflect on that a little bit? I was so glad to see this book by Wilkerson because I think that almost every culture has a caste system, whether they label it that or not. And I think that India's caste system is just one of many. Uh, I don't think that there is a need for a caste system, but it evolves over time as people have jobs that they are uh, sort of molded into, as they have social boundaries that they are prisoners of. I think that caste systems do evolve in almost every culture. Well, I'm so glad that you expounded on it that way because you could, in many ways, you could read the two books sort of side by side. It would be very, very interesting to do that. Would you read a little bit of it for us so we get a taste of it? Yes, I absolutely will. So I am going to read from a passage from the very beginning scene where Lakshmi is applying henna to Parvati's feet. Parvati is a major force in the social scene in Jaipur. And Lakshmi knows that when she applies henna to Parvati, she is really helping build her clientele because Parvati has influence over so many people. Here she is thinking while she is applying the henna. Parvati, like my other ladies, said things to me she would never have said to one of her peers. I was childless and therefore a subject of pity, someone to whom my ladies could feel superior. At 30, I was neither a foolish girl nor a gossipy matron. My ladies had long assumed my husband had abandoned me, an assumption I'd taken no trouble to contradict. I still wore the vermilion bindi on my forehead, announcing to the world that I was married. Without this assortment of credentials, I would never have been allowed into the confidence of my ladies or into bedrooms like the one I found myself in now, my feet resting on pink salambar marble my mistress seated next to me on a rosewood divan. I took another sip of my chai. 
Finding a perfect match for such a perfect son, I certainly don't envy you. Oh, he's only 17. At 12, I lost him to the Mayo School. A year from now, I'll lose him once again to Oxford. Losing him to a wife? I can't bear to think about that now. Beautiful, beautiful. So what's next? Do you have another book uh, that you, that's kicking around? Are you thinking of something else? While the Hannah artist took me 10 years to write, 10 years to publication, the sequel came very easily because I've lived with these characters for so long that one of them, Malik, uh, who is Lakshmi's uh, assistant, little Muslim assistant, um, he is grown up and he started knocking at my head saying, I've got a story I have to tell. And I had to set aside another project I had started working on so I could start telling his story. And I started working on it. And then soon the sequel was ready to be shown to the publisher and the publisher bought it right away on the strength oh, of 50 pages or something. So then I had to finish it. <laughs> then I had to really get going and finish it. And it is coming out next July. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so that is really exciting. That's called the Royal Jewel Cinema. And then while I was writing that, I realized, you know, I had like 150 pages that didn't make it into the henna artist uh, published version. So there was an epilogue I had written about Radha and her trajectory uh, years into the future as she's an adult. So I thought that's another book that I want to write about. I want to write about what happens to Radha as an older woman as she grows, as she gets married, and then she moves to France and becomes a perfumer. Mm. And, you know, I want to go to France and write that thing. So, of course, it has to be in France that <laughs> she's a perfumer. <laughs> so cool. um, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. And that will end the trilogy. You're having a lot of fun, aren't you, as well? I am, Mitch. I am just having the time of my life. And I'm so excited that at the age of 62, I have this whole other career. And, you know, every morning I wake up and I have things to look forward to. I have readers who are writing to me and then I have sequels to write and it's just all fun. And I have people like you to talk to. It's been really, really a pleasure. It really has. And I wish you the best of luck with everything. And we will be hand selling this book all the way through Christmas. So um, everyone out there, my guest today has been Alka Joshi and her book is called The Hannah Artist. Do yourself a favor, make sure that you buy it from your local indie bookshop or you can get it from booksandbooks.com or bookshop.org, but make sure you do buy it. And uh, Alka, I hope that when all this is said and done, we'll be able to get you down to Miami and have you do a in-person live event. I would love for that to happen. I have so many readers in Miami. I would love to do that. And everybody do go out to Books and Books and please uh, buy a copy of the henna artist even an audio version would be good right no I'm sure. who's read who does the audio version who reads it a know? woman named sneha mothin oh. and i found her myself because i wanted to have this really authentic voice somebody who could bring every character to life including the talking parakeet and sneha was able to do that and so i recommended that we try her out for the audition for the henna artist and she was amazing in fact i think she's the reason why we also made the new york times audiobook bestseller list right right well, the producer in you has not stopped. But you're, still, you're still writing and doing art direction and everything. So we expect great things in the future. And uh, we hope to have you back on The Literary Life. Thank you so much, Alka. Thank you, Mitch. It was a pleasure.